You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Thanks for tuning in. This week's episode of National Security Law Today is going to feature some of the remarks from our panel at the ABA annual meeting in San Francisco. These are the keynote remarks from the panel National Security, Where Are the Cyber Gaps? from Saturday, August 10th, delivered by Gilman Louie, who's a partner at Alsop Louie Partners and the founder and former CEO of InQtel. Also in the panel is Herb Lynn, a research scholar and fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and Dina Temple-Raston, a special correspondent at NPR, and it was moderated by Harvey Rishikoff, the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security Advisory Committee. The full audio of the panel will be available on our website, AmericanBar.org NatSecurity. You can always visit us there to find out more about the committee and our events. And we've just opened registration for the 29th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference, November 7th and 8th in downtown Washington, D.C. Check out more information on our website, AmericanBar.org NatSecurity. Can you enlighten us sure. on how you are grasping this process of where the gaps are in the space? Well, I mean, there are a lot of gaps in cyber, and, and there are technical gaps, there are legal gaps. Um, the gap that I really want to talk about is our framework about what cyber is. And the particular gap I want to focus in on is the weaponizing of the Internet. Um, so when I usually talk about this subject, uh, I assume that my audience doesn't know very much about national security, because I spent tend to speak a lot about these subjects to technologists and kind of West Coast companies. So I apologize if some of this stuff is kind of, you know, kind of old news, but it's important for us to frame uh, the topic, particularly in the context of national security. So let's, let's just jump right in. Let's set the stage on national security as national security professionals think about this problem, men and women in uniform think about this problem every single day. So. Um, as you all know, the world continues to be a complex as well as a dangerous place. Uh, we're wrestling with terrorism on one hand. We have countries like Russia who continue to play the role of global agitator and wants to reestablish the South as a superpower. China seeks to catch or and surpass the United States as a leading superpower by 2035. It's committed to modernizing its military, grow its international influence, um, they want to have the world's largest GDP surpass the U.S. in innovation and technologies, especially in things like AI, become a leader in global health, advanced manufacturing, quantum computing, and communications technologies. North Korea and Iran uh, remain dangerous regional powers with nuclear ambition. Nationalism and extremism is on the rise globally. Global aging is draining healthcare systems around the world and making it more difficult to plan out global workforces. We are facing both natural and environmental threats. The global economy is increasingly interdependent and brittle. There is a global diffusion of potentially dangerous technologies and capabilities. Information and misinformation today spreads virally at the speed of the net. Autonomy, along with other technologies such as hypersonics, beam weapons, stealth, cyber, are dramatically reducing the time for decision-making and response. Um, and it's not just for our folks in the military and the government. Just think for 
people in financial services, when you hear a piece of information, do you trade or not trade, right? Does it really matter if it's the truth or is it a perceived truth? Uh, that time to respond is shrinking daily. Countries around the world, including our adversaries, are wrestling with how they should safeguard their countries from cyber threats and foreign influence. Technologies such as AI, autonomy, biomedicine, advanced manufacturing, big data and advanced analytics, image recognition and processing, augmented and virtual reality, robotics, synthetic food production, and future technologies such as quantum computing, fusion energy are having and will continue to have massive impacts on every aspect of our lives from how we work, how we learn, eat, play, govern, live and protect our loved ones. These technologies will lead to more changes globally over the next 20 years than we've experienced over the previous 100 years. And today I want to focus on how cyber operations is evolving and how it impacts national security. But first, let's review some basic concepts of warfare, force, power. But what is force and power, right, when we think about it? It's really about making somebody do or a nation state do something they would not naturally want to do. Right? And we have all different mechanisms that we could use um, to make our adversaries do something that they don't want to do or prevent them from doing something that they want us to do that we don't want to do. So we use these instruments of national power. And we typically call it the, the dime for short. We use diplomacy. We can use information. We can use the military, our economic means, as a sets of tools and national force. And you know, when we think about force itself, we have everything from weapons of mass destruction, like bio-nuclear weapons, to conventional warfare, to covert action and diplomacy. Well, I want to really focus in on covert action for a moment. Covert action is an activity that influenced political, economic, or military conditions abroad, where it is intended that the role of the attacker will not be apparent or acknowledged publicly. Covert actions encompasses a broad spectrum of activities that includes propaganda, political economic action, paramilitary operations, or lethal force. And, and for our men and women who serve in the Air Force, you know, they, the Air Force, uh, my, my dad served in the Army Air Corps, had this concept of these five rings of um, uh, considering enemy center of gravity, and the goal is if you can affect as many of those rings simultaneously, you can create physical paralysis in a country or a nation state. And it usually starts with the outer ring being the military, then the population, then the infrastructure, then the system essentials, followed by leadership. And the goal is, at the end of the day, in many cases, regime change. Right? So if I can get to the center of that circle, that bullseye, and lead to regime change, that, that is the ultimate outcome of the use of force. Now, we think about our U.S. military. We're organized historically in these four domains, right? <coughs> Army for land, Navy and Marines for sea, <coughs> Air Force for air. Now, we've added two new regimes, you know, the concept of space force for space and cyber command for cyber. What's interesting about cyber, it is a completely different domain than any of the other domains that we've ever fought in. First of all, it's a force multiplier. Warfare cyber can be used classically, asymmetrically, or as a part of a hybrid capability. Cyber can be integrated into all forms of power projection and instruments of national power. Cyber can create new concepts of battle and warfare, 
cyber favors the attacker. The cost to attack is so low relative to the cost to defend. And cyber affects all domains of action and affects all rings. Our adversaries, particularly the Chinese and Russians, have significantly increased their cyber capabilities and have a thorough understanding of the seams of our technical, regulatory, and political environments. They do have, they do not have the same constraints that we have on cyber operations, and they have different values than we have. And there is no hard line in those countries between the military and the commercial industries, particularly with countries like China. Cyber can negate old concepts of warfare and empower nation states as well as NGOs to skip the rings and attack directly at the center of leadership by leveraging their populations. So let me go to the old concepts of cybersecurity. This is kind of like last week's thought. Okay, last week, we tend to think of cybersecurity and the cyberspace as this digital infrastructure, right? That, that supports our communications, that stores the data and information, you know, services our financial markets, arts our critical infrastructure, and it supports our modern digital lives. I mean, let me give you an example. The four pillars of the U.S. National Cyber Strategy as published are these four points. One, protect the American people, the homeland, and the American way of life by safeguarding network systems, functions, and data. Two, promote American prosperity by nurturing a strong, secure, thriving digital economy and fostering strong domestic innovation. Three, preserve the peace and security by strengthening the ability of the U.S. and its partners and its allies to deter and punish those who use cyber maliciously and advance American influence to the extent the key tenets of an open, interoperable, reliable, and secure internet. Now, those are all good things, right? We think about those things. You talk to CSOs, major corporations. You talk to the Defense Department. That's our framework about cyber. But cyber is evolving, right? From the idea, particularly cybersecurity, right? Cybersecurity historically is about protecting our digital infrastructure and the internet from breaches and denial of service attacks, right? But it's evolving to a new place. Cybersecurity now also includes preventing the weaponization of our digital infrastructure. While information influence campaigns have been around since the dawn of warfare, today's digital infrastructure changes how wars and campaigns get implemented and how it affects our national security. And it's because we're in this perfect storm. You know, I, we have these arguments that the us in the tech field, well, you know, you know, fake photos have been around forever, right? Fake news has been around forever. Propaganda has been around forever. What's new? What's different? So what? Does it really matter that it's digital? And my argument is it does. First of all, the internet is global. The internet can be anonymous and without attribution. And for lawyers in the room, it's really hard to do tort if you don't know who did launch the attack on you or caused the damage. The speed of information now travels unencumbered at the speed of the net. The social graph not only allows information to freely flow, but is amplified by social sentiment and reinforced by social groupthink and grows virally. The crowdsourcing information has challenged traditional news collections as an acceptable and sometimes preferred alternative source of information. News has evolved into media with each outlet servicing and reinforcing their consumers' sensibilities and belief systems. Advanced analytics, many developed for the ad tech businesses, are now used in tools of campaign and political management to help message shape, spin perceptions and communications. These analytical tools are increasingly predictive and can dynamically create media to target individual sentiments and habits. 
AI and machine learning combined with digital suites designed for the entertainment industry, the gaming industry, and, and the internet has created new digital capabilities that are able to create synthetic realities. In my world, it's creating Pokemon and video games, but in the world of central power, it is creating new kinds of capabilities popularly known as deep fakes. These tools are widely available, can easily be used by even the novices or script bunnies. And well, you might explain what a script bunny is. A script is. bunny is, you know, some an individual doesn't know what they're doing, right? But they, if they launch this new app, they can participate in that attack. Are right. they different than script kitties? Uh, yeah, they're a little bit like script kitties, but we call them script bunnies because they're basically food for fodder. I mean, we just basically. They're just out there, and there could be digital versions of them as well as humans, right? So that's the takeaway. There's a difference between a kitten and a bunny. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> kitty requires some level of thought versus kind of raw meat that's just out there then. So that's fine. I didn't know that. That's cool. So, um, you know, the, the thing about it is today, we kind of say, well, you know, you can detect them. And we're working on all this technology. You know, DARPA has programs. Universities have programs to detect deep fakes, Right. But here's the problem. When you see something, it now gives anybody a plausible deniability of what is fact and what is fiction, right? It creates doubt. Culturally, we love breaking news. We love scandals. We love conspiracies, particularly when it's us versus them. And with the power of social media, groups can quickly form around opinions or a theory and turn them into self-reinforced facts that then get picked up by mainstream media and amplified by our political by political rhetoric. The increased role of AI, machine learning, and autonomy may add new cyber vulnerabilities as autonomy and AI are highly dependent on the quality of the data, reliability of the sensors, and the integrity of the network. So how does all of this affect national security? So here's the first point. Our adversaries are learning that attacking the United States digitally can be done with very little real consequences, and that influence operations is becoming one of the most effective tools of national power projection. Our adversaries use many of these same tools and methods to influence our commercial companies, special interest groups, political parties, and politicians, making it very difficult to distinguish who is trying to influence us and for what purpose. And our cybersecurity infrastructure, especially our commercial infrastructure, cannot defend against a well-equipped nation state that is willing to use its national means to attack or weaponize our digital infrastructure. And over the past several years, our adversaries have effectively launched disinformation campaigns, information warfare against our centers of leadership and power, attempting to influence elections, sow the seeds of conflict among our citizens, and foster distrust of our basic institutions. And as a matter of national discourse, we allow ourselves to become numb to spin and manipulation, and we have blurred the lines between truth and falsehood, turning every fact into fake or opinion. For example, Science is now just considered a collection of theories and opinions. For the, intellect, for the intelligence professionals, this is not just about truth anymore. It's about context and perception. As news becomes media and as the internet becomes social, it's nearly impossible to find ground truth. Even if the intelligence professional has ground truth, it's hard to communicate it if the consumers of intelligence are colored by what they want to see reinforced by their selective channels of media, social networks, and information, as well as biased by their predisposed belief system. The endless sources of alternative analysis makes it increasingly difficult for an analyst to provide products 
that rise above the noise, when I say products, these are intelligence products, uh, we would call reports, um, especially if it's contrary to the popular thought. In complicating matters, our adversaries who are shaping and manipulating the information that we as analysts see and try to influence our thinking. There is an increasing use of advanced social and media analytics and news technologies that includes deepfakes and smart bots that makes it harder and harder to understand what is real and what is deception, what is fact and what is being manipulated. These capabilities, many of which are driven by machine learning and AI, are rapidly improving, making it harder and harder to spot. And even more challenging is that these systems are designed to use our tendencies against us by feeding us what we want to see because algorithms can compute our tendencies using similar approaches to how analytics such as sabermetrics are being used in sports. In cyber attack and information operations, it makes it increasingly difficult to believe what we see and make it dangerous to act while our decision loops are shrinking. In cyber, instead of holding the attackers responsible, today we hold our companies, the targets of many of these attacks, responsible. This plays directly into the hands of some of our adversaries who want to weaken U.S. technology's global influence and replace it with their own. And while our technology companies need to be part of the solution, how do we hold them fully responsible when, as a government, we are unable to protect our own information against attackers with national means and determination? So what do we do about all of this? First, we must raise the cost for the attacker to a combination of regulatory, tort, and economic responses. Second, we must rethink how we as the federal government work with our commercial companies and digital infrastructure providers to reduce the ability of our adversaries to weaponize our information to social networks. The federal government must take the primacy role in protecting our citizens, our companies, and our institutions from foreign influence and tax. And as a nation, we need to think, we may re need to rethink some of our foundational concepts and legal frameworks in this new digital reality. But we must do so without damaging the principles of our democracy. We need to re-examine re some of our concepts of freedom of speech, censorship, privacy, uh, anonymity, fair use, copyright laws, and how we apply existing laws and torts into protecting our citizens. We should be mindful that technologies are rapidly evolving, and we must be careful of doing more harm than good by tackling point problems with excessive feel-good regulations. We must appropriately invest in defensive measures and facilitate information sharing that make it more difficult for our adversaries to carry out their campaigns. And we should revisit the concept of a cyber safe harbor for companies who meet reasonable standards of production and safe use of their platforms and technologies. We should continue to engage with responsible nations and define unacceptable nation-state behavior, and we should enlist our allies into opposing appropriate costs and remedies against attacking nation-states and non-state actors who are responsible for influencing campaigns and election tampering, including the use of things like smart tariffs. We need to revise the, some of our roles of journalism and take a look at the new and required ethical standards of responsible news and reporting. And finally, as a nation, we must stop blurring the lines between truth and fiction. We must return to putting the country ahead of party, profits, and personal gain. And while the American two-party system is designed to foster debate and competition for new ideas and leadership, it is not okay to allow foreign influence to use covert action and direct interference, even if it gives us a momentary advantage.
Thank you for listening to this episode of National Security Law Today. Join us again next week for more from the ABA annual meeting in San Francisco. You can always find us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Check out the information about our newly announced 29th annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference, a two-day in-person event in downtown Washington, D.C., November 7th and 8th. More information at our site. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.